Well, good morning, Westwood. Happy homecoming. Happy birthday. Uh, I am super happy to be here with you this morning. I'm excited and thankful. As a church, you are evidence of God's grace. You are evidence of God's faithfulness. And you are evidence of both of those things to me. And so I am super thankful to be here with you today. Uh, I am a product of you who have poured into me. Your pastor is still a pastor to me. And so through the years, uh, I've just been encouraged. It has been 17 and a half years since I stood where I'm standing right now. And uh, I would say that those of you that know me, you're thinking to yourself, man, Josh has changed. He has, he has less hair. He has a lot more kids. And there's some salt in the pepper uh, in my hair now. Uh, my wife is here with three of our children in the back. Uh, two of our boys are fishing uh, this morning. Couldn't pull them away from the coast, so they're fishing with some men in our church. Um, but I'm, I'm so thankful to be here. But I'm not the only one that has changed. Y'all have changed, and uh, I've got evidence of change. If you'll go ahead and put that up on the screen. Uh, I, I want to explain this picture to you since we're being nostalgic this morning and remembering. Uh, the guy in the middle is my father. Uh, that is my dad. Uh, to his right or to his left is uh, one of his best friends, Daniel. And to his right was a man, B.C., uh, before Christ and his grace to him. That is your pastor with my father and a, a, a friend of his. And so he, uh, my dad had a stroke uh, this summer and Gerald sent that picture that was a great encouragement, but it became, um, it became a, a good tool for me to use to embarrass him today. So uh, thankful. Uh, Gerald and I would both say, standing here, we could echo the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, where he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his, his grace to me, is not without effect. So we are not the same people that we were. And it is only because of God's grace that we sing about today, that we celebrate. And so I want to remind you of that. I want to tell you today that as a church, your best days are ahead of you. As a church, no matter what you're facing today, what you'll face tomorrow, what you'll go through personally and what you'll go through corporately, What scripture teaches us is that for believers and for God's people, the best is yet to come. And life is hard. Some of you know that personally. Maybe you know it financially. Maybe you know it in a health crisis that you're in right now. Maybe it's a relational crisis that you're in. But you're no different from any of God's people at any given point of time of history. Life is hard because we live in a broken world. And that's why when First Peter, if you have your Bibles open to First Peter chapter one. That's why when Peter, when he begins this letter to these believers, he calls them elect exiles, reminding them that this world is not their home, that we should expect suffering, that life is hard. But the good news that Peter is going to show them in verses three through nine, which is going to be the thrust of our message today that sets the tone for the rest of his letter to them is that the best is yet to come. See, the Christians that Peter were writing to were a minority people in their culture. They were marginalized socially, politically, and economically. Their religious freedoms had been stripped from them. And in some cases, they were persecuted under the rule and reign of Nero. And so as the Christians are experiencing a loss of freedom, as they're experiencing a loss of status, 
as the heat is being turned up on them, Peter is writing this to really build their faith and encourage them. And so I want to tell you that at whatever point in life you are, wherever your spiritual walk is today, that the good news is that as children of God, that our best days are ahead of us. See, Peter is reminding them that the best is yet to come. So we pick up in verse 3, which is an explosion. It's like a, a fireworks of praise to God for what he has done. And in verse 3 it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away and it is reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would honor your name and that you would honor your word. Lord, that you would open our minds, that we would understand your word, that we would see your character, that we would see your goodness, that we would see your mercy, that we would see the promises that you have given us in your son. And God, may it go from our head to our heart, that we would treasure you, that we would value you, that we would forsake all things that pull us away from you, and that you would be our one pursuit, you would be our one desire, you would be our one passion. And so, Father, we thank you that you are a good father, that you are faithful, that you are consistent, that you were merciful, that you were generous, and that, God, you intend good for your people. And so, God, help us to not just hear it with our ears, but believe it with our hearts. Help us to treasure Christ as supreme of all earthly relationships. God, help us this morning, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. See, our hope as believers, what Peter has just told us, is that the best is yet to come. See, God makes that promise to his people and nothing on this earth can give you that promise that the best is yet to come. You could think, man, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make a lot of money. I'm going to build a business and make a lot of money. I'm going to use that money and buy a lot of things. I'm going to buy a lot of cool things or I'm going to work on this relationship. And when I have this relationship, when I get married and I have kids, I'm going to be content and happy. It's just going to fill me up. I'm never going to lack anything like you can go on and on. And everything that we set our hope in gives way except Christ. And so what? Peter is doing is he is reminding us that we set our hope on something that is living, that is raised from the dead, that is undefiled, that never perishes and that never dies. See, we live in a culture where our hope is constantly shattered. Now, I know that some of you are really anxious about this Tuesday and what's going to happen. But can I tell you that on Wednesday, your hope is no less diminished based on what happens on Tuesday? Now, if you're like me, I struggle to believe that sometimes. But that's why Peter gives us texts like this to remind us that no matter what's coming our way, no matter what we are facing, 
that the best is yet to come. And look at how Peter describes the hope that God has given us in verse 3. He says, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. See, this is the source and foundation. This is the very beginning of our hope. Where does our hope come from? Through an empty tomb. Like, how do we have hope that better is yet to come? Like, how can we trust that when God says the best is yet to come? The empty tomb. Jesus is resurrected. It is a living hope. It's not a hope that's dead. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you now. He is ruling and reigning. And what is holding him back right now from his victorious rule and reign, that is a forever reign, is his desire for you to come to faith and repentance in him. You experience life in him. And so verse 3 reminds us that who, according to his abundant mercy, you know what mercy is? It's not something we deserve. It's a gift. See, this is what makes the value of hope so priceless. Because it's God's abundant mercy that has given this to you. It's not something that you've worked for. It's not something that you've earned. See, the only way we have hope that there is a happy ending at the end of our lives is because all our sin is covered under the blood of Christ on the cross. It is the only way. The only way you can look at tomorrow and have confidence is through the new birth that Jesus Christ gives us. See, in John 3, chapter 3, Jesus answered Nicodemus and said, truly, I, tru- truly, I say to you. And he repeats that. He's like, this is the truth. Like, I'm, I'm reemphasizing, like, you need to pay attention. This is true. Truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be born again? It means that spiritually we're dead. Ephesians 2 tells us that. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, has given us life in his Son. And so life in his Son comes through faith and repentance. See, the hope that God has given is a life-changing hope. That's why verse 3 continues. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Everything we believe as Christians hinges on the resurrection. And that's what Peter is doing. He's getting ready to tell how you should uh, live in the workplace, how you should live in the home later in the chapter. He's saying, hey, how, how should we live under the authorities over us? But before he tells us how we should live, he reminds us who we are, that we are a people who have been born again. We no longer live for ourselves, but we live for God. And it is the spirit of God living in his people that radically transforms us. See, the opposite of living is what? Dead, right? Lifeless. But we have a living hope. We have a hope that lives. And so this morning, I want to give you three exhortations from this text as a church. And they're listed uh, on the printout in the notes there. And you can jot uh, jot along uh, as we go. But I want to give you three exhortations that I hope build your faith today. And this is the first one. Pursue the depths of God's promises for you in Christ. God's desire for you is to pursue and explore the depths of the promises that he has given you. I have a friend who just bought a brand new truck, and it has all the bells and whistles. The rear seats are bucket seats in the truck. It, it, it cools, it heats. The front seats, they do the same. The front seats even have their, their massaging chairs. I didn't even know that existed. But these trucks have massaging chairs both in the driver's seat and in the passenger seat. So a couple weeks ago, he bought this truck, and I was riding with him the first week that he bought the, the truck. And uh, we're riding down the wall, road, and he hits the steering wheel. 
And I was like, what's wrong? And he said, I called the dealership yesterday and I told him I'm bringing the truck back because it's got a vibration to it. And I paid a lot of money for this truck and a truck should not vibrate when it's driving down the road. So he said, I'm, I'm taking the truck back. It's too much money to spend on a truck that vibrates like this. I'll, I'll go with something better, like a Toyota Tundra, which is what I drive. <laughs> but he hit his steering wheel because he realized something as he was driving down the road that the, the truck has a feature on it that is a lane departure assist. Which means that when you start crossing over a yellow line, you know what the seat does? It vibrates. So what he thought was making the truck fall apart was actually saving him. And so when he turned lanes, he goes, it does it when I change lanes. And I said, well, turn your signal on when you're changing lanes. See if it does it. Turns the signal on. It doesn't do it. His mind was blown. (laughs) And you know what I thought? Many of us as believers, that's how we function when it comes to the promises of God. All the bells and whistles of being a child of God. And we have no clue. We have no clue. Like if we knew the promises that God had given us, we would live in a different way. If you if you truly believe that what God said is true, you would live with a lot more confidence and a lot less fear. I'm speaking to the man in the mirror, if anyone, I want you to notice in verse four. I mean, he starts off here giving a promise of an imperishable inheritance. Verse four says to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Now, look. You should have a class just on verse 4 and what this means. We do not have time to dive into the depths of what an inheritance that is undefiled, incorruptible, and that does not fade away. Like, that's something for someone a lot smarter than me. That's why Matt Lawrence is our associate pastor. I go, go talk to Matt. But this is what I want to tell you about incorruptible. It means that it can't be damaged. Incorruptible it means that it can't break down. Like, everything you own. Breaks down your own earthly temple, your body, it breaks down. So look, you're not attuned to things that don't break. And that's what makes this promise so unbelievable that you have an inheritance in Christ who is our inheritance. You have an inheritance that cannot be broken. It cannot be damaged, but also it's undefiled, which means it's pure. It's unstained by evil and sin. There is no weight to this inheritance that will hold you back. It will cause you to glory and to rejoice when you see the inheritance that God has given to you. But also it is unfading. You know what that means? It means it never gets old. Have you ever heard of the law of diminishing returns? The law of diminishing returns says that, uh, and I, I see this in my children, but then when I see it in my children, I realize that it's in myself, that you, you want something and you get that something. But the more of that you have, the more it takes to make you satisfied. It's kind of like we, uh, our dream, Melissa and I's dream has been always to have a farm. We, we want to have our own cows. We want to have our own pigs. We have 16 chickens that just started laying eggs. Like, that is our, our dream. And our boys like to hunt. And so we've got land they can hunt on now. Like, it's glorious. We love it. But we've been out there. And what we've realized is that no matter what we possess, we're always wanting more. The law of diminishing returns tells us that we are never satisfied. But what God promises is an inheritance that is unfading. It doesn't lose its shine. It never ceases to not satisfy you. It reminds us that we should not set our hearts on lesser things. But let me tell you that hope springs eternal only when hope is placed in something eternal. 
The only way for you to have hope, for your soul to be satisfied, and for you to have joy that is unceasing is found in a relationship with Jesus. That is the only way. Do you remember the movie Shawshank Redemption? About the two men, Andy and Red. Andy was unjustly convicted, and so he spends time in in prison. He meets a, a, a friend named Red. And one day, they're in the prison yard, and Andy tells Red, he says, Hey, if we're ever freed from Shawshank, I want you to go to this certain town and find a certain field. In the field, you'll find a tree, and under the tree, you'll find some rocks. And he said, I want you to uncover that the rocks, and you'll find a tin can. And when you find what's in that tin can, I want you to make it across the border to a little Mexican fishing village. And not long after that, Andy escaped from Shawshank. So one day, Red is paroled, and he's really struggling through life. Remember those scenes? He's, he's just struggling, but he remembers what uh, Andy had said. So he goes and he finds the town, he finds the field, he finds the tree. He uncovers the rock, and uh, in it was a little tin can, and he opens it, and Andy had written this. Red, never forget, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. No good thing ever dies. You know what no good thing ever dies? There is only one, hope in Christ. It's the only thing that will never die. And so many times in our life, we have a misplaced hope. Maybe it's in our image, how people perceive us. Sometimes it's things. It's what we wear, the clothes we have, the toys we have. Maybe it's in hobbies. Maybe it's a game. Sometimes we place our hope in people. And when they let us down, our hope is shattered. Sometimes our hope is placed in experiences, that we want to experience the good things in life, but ultimately those things fade. See, in Matthew six nineteen through 21, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What I'm imploring and exhort you to do is to make Christ your treasure. Because when Christ is your treasure, when He's what you long for, when He's what you pursue, then the soul is satisfied and nothing that comes at you can shake you. See, God has promised an inheritance that never gets old, that never dies. But also notice in verse 5, He doesn't just give him a a promise of an unfading inheritance, but a faith that is guarded and kept by God. Now, this should give you great confidence in your faith. Verse 5 says, who were kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What verse 5 is saying is that the power to keep our faith does not depend on us, but depends on God. Like your confidence doesn't have to be in yourself in doing better. Your confidence is in God, who will keep you, who will finish the work that he is doing in you. And this should give us peace, right? See, man cannot give you what you desire the most. No one can give you what you desire the most. But what verse 5 says is that the gift of salvation that God has given us through faith in Christ is being kept by the power of God. Now, how powerful is God? That's a personal question you need to answer according to the way you study Scripture. How powerful is God? We'll start in Genesis. Who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. Who upholds everything by the power of His Word. You know what? You know why you had to sleep last night? As a reminder that you're not sovereign, that you're not powerful. But God is. While you slept, Jesus upheld the universe by the power of his word. 
while you slept. You did nothing. And so our confidence should be in God. This is our confident expectation. Romans 8 verse 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake... We are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Now, just take that verse. And could you identify with Paul there? Probably not to that extreme, right? He says, for your sake, we're killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. But what he's saying is, even in that, nothing can separate us from the way God loves us. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The beauty of the gospel is that the gospel does not depend on our work, but on Christ's work. And when by faith you receive Christ, God will guard it. Your confidence can be in him. The second exhortation I want to give you this morning is to remember your glorious future in the broken present. Now, verse 6 is amazing. Verse 6 says, in this you greatly rejoice. Now, remember the context. There there is a a narrative that under Nero that Christians were tied to a, a stake. They were tarred and they were... Burnt. They were lit on fire in, in uh, Nero's garden as lights, like Christians. Like, that's how they killed them. Like, that's the threat to, that many of them were facing. Yet Peter here says something that's just out of this world. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. You might die, right? People may not like you. You may have your freedoms taken from you. Relationships in your family might be broken. But he says, in this you greatly rejoice. See, as God's people, we live in the tension of the now and the not yet of God's kingdom. He says, now rejoice, now grieve. Those things can exist together. You can grieve and at the same time rejoice. Those things are are not uh, opposed to one another. See, in our grief, we can still have joy. We look at the brokenness and say, this world is not as it should be. The life is not fair. We can say those type of things also rejoicing, knowing that one day God will redeem all things and put everything that is broken back together. Tim Keller says what you believe about the future shapes the way you experience the present. What you believe about the end of your life and standing before God will determine and shape the way you experience today and tomorrow. And so what? Peter is doing is he's trying to give them hope to keep them going. Have you ever been at dinner and your kids won't eat the meal? You know, you put beans or vegetables or something that's really good for them in front of them and they won't eat. And you know what you tell them sometimes? You say, hey, mom and dad have dessert. Mom and dad are, are going down to Maple View. Maple View is a, a ice cream shop in Gibsonville right down from our house. And it is amazing how my kids, their, their excuse is always the same. I mean, my, my kids were conceived in sin. They're an offspring of me and Adam. So they have that in their blood. So whenever they're eating and they don't like it, you know what they tell us? They're full. Mom and dad, I'm not hungry. I'm like, you haven't touched your plate. How can you not be hungry? And all of a sudden we say, hey, we're going to get ice cream if you finish. And all of a sudden they have an appetite. It is amazing. Like, they wolf that stuff down. But that's not the only thing in life, right? When you're in labor. Now, I've never personally experienced labor myself, but I've been in the room five times. 
for four of those, no medication. And so seeing my wife deliver, the very first time uh, uh, she was delivering Jackson, woke up uh, on March 15th knowing my life was about to radically change. And she was singing. We were listening to this playlist. She was singing, and she kept saying, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And I watched my life labor, and I have never felt so helpless in my life. Like, there was just nothing I could do. As a matter of fact, uh, she, she told me, she's like, hey, let's create a playlist so that when I'm in labor, we can play the playlist. So I had these songs, and I picked them out. Like, they were soothing and calm. And I was like, so, uh, and she said, she, she told me, she's like, you know, I want to have this natural. So when, when I get to the point that I'm asking for the epidural, don't let them give it, give it to me. And so I was ready. I got ready. I was like, I've got a job. I'm on it. So we have the playlist. She's laboring. It gets pretty intense. And she looks at me. She's like, go get Tanya. I'm ready for the epidural. I was like, my time to shine. Like, here I come in. And so I'm like, I've got this, you know. And so I looked at her and I had, I had, I prayed about this and I had a saying that was going to change the way she viewed labor. And so I looked at her and I said, babe, make the decision with your mind, not your body. And she looked at me and she said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> go get Tanya. I was like, I'm gone. So I go, I go and get Tanya, come back. And she's like, Melissa, you feel like you can push? About 30 minutes later, we had a baby. And she said this right after. Jackson comes out like, I mean, I need windshield wipers for my eyes. Like It was just such an awesome moment. But she looked at me and she said, I could do that again. And I thought, you lost your mind. <laughs> And she did it four more times. But you know why? Listen, because when you're in the labor, you feel like you're never going to get through it. Feels like it's never going to end, that you're never going to come through it. But then when that baby's in your arms, could you do it again? Yeah, you could. Look, that's what that's what Peter's trying to do. He's trying to show us the future. It's, it's not a dessert. It's it's not having a baby. For me, I run. Uh, Jeremy Clayton, I'll never forget what Jeremy Clayton, he said, if you ever see me run and shoot whatever's chasing me. <laughs> and so I run, I know you can't tell, I do run sometimes, um, but, but in running, it's always the end result. And, and what, what Peter is doing for us here is, look, he's going to tell them to do some hard things the rest of Peter, but he's trying to give them a living hope that they set their eyes on. Be thou my vision, right? Like, your vision today is not Gerald, it's not Josh, it's not JT, it's not Jason. Y'all got three amazing pastors who this guy is really thankful for. But ultimately, our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in Christ. Like, one day, look... Hey, let's make a deal. I do this with my church occasionally. A hundred years from day, from today, all of you as believers, let's meet a hundred years from today. Deal? Seriously. In heaven, let's all get together and say, hey, remember when we celebrated 60 years ago, a hundred years ago? You know where we're all going to be together by God's grace? We're going to be together in heaven. And you know what we'll say? You remember the, the strife and the turmoil, the uncertainty? Was it worth it, guys? Would you live this life a thousand times? To experience the grace and the mercy that God has given you in Christ. See, because we have great hope, we can face great pain with joy. See, I struggle with this because sometimes my problems appear bigger than God. But the problem is not God, it's my misplaced hope. C.S. Lewis once said, there are far better things ahead than we leave behind. 
So when your faith is alive and strong, it will produce an explosion of worship that Peter has just led the church in here. It makes all the tough stuff worth it. So in verse 7, he says that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, again, that's living hope, more precious than gold. I mean, if I told you today, hey, for homecoming today, everybody gets a bar of gold. Everybody gets really excited about this. And Peter's like, that's nothing. It's more precious than that. It's more valuable than that. It's tested by fire. It endures. It's made pure. May be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know what we see? May be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That hope, our hope in Christ leads to a soul-satisfying worship. Soul-satisfying worship. That, that this faith that is tested, more precious than gold, will be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you what's encouraging? I know that right now as I stand here, Matt is about 40 miles an hour. Way And we're proclaiming the same gospel to the same big C church. And as I stood in here this morning and heard you sing the praises of God, man, I can't wait to get to heaven with you. That we worship this king and the soul satisfying worship never diminishes. There is a quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. See, your suffering is not wasted. Your suffering will be worth it. Your citizenship is in heaven. See, our trials reveal our faith. Your trials, when you go through a hard time, it reveals what you believe about God. And it can be some of the most valuable Your suffering can be some of the most valuable life lessons of the faithfulness and grace of God. I stand here 17 and a half years later to say so. The trials stink. It's hard. It hurts. But the end of it, when you keep your eyes on the prize, when you you suffer as an obedient follower of Jesus Christ, when you walk through it, you come out. To something that you wouldn't trade your life for. So our trials reveal our faith and the things that we hope for. So if I were to ask you, when things get tough, what do you go to? What is your go-to? When things are hard, where do you run? What is your escape? Is it a beach house? Like, is it a, a place that you go to? Is it a person or a relationship that you seek after? Like, what is it that you seek? Where is it that you go when things are getting really tough? And let me ask you this. Those things, apart from Christ, how have they ever worked out for you? How have those things that you've run to to think, this will satisfy me, this will be better? How have those things ever worked out? Like, if you don't believe in the gospel today, I just want you to take yourself away from the gospel and just ask, like, what in life is working? When things don't go well and I run to those things. Like, what are those things that satisfy me? What do those things fill me up? What do those things constantly produces worship in my heart? See, Peter says in verse 8, he reminds us to pursue Christ in our faith. Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Look. If your hope is to never get sick, to never lose your job, to never be poor, to always have your freedom, to never be disliked, 
To never change the way that you look or your appearance. To never be weak. You will be broken. Because those things, all of them, will give way. And that's why, remember your glorious future in the broken present. Remember what's coming. Church, if you leave with anything I say today, leave with this. That in Christ, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. You have something to look forward to. The third exhortation I have this morning is to leverage your life for the mission of the gospel. I want to encourage you. I know Gerald has shared with me where you have been as a church, where uh, as a church you are being equipped to be missional, to be intentional about your evangelism and discipleship. The church, that's why we exist, to help. Discipleship is helping people follow Jesus, helping people know and follow Jesus. That's why the church exists. Every church exists for that. Our mission statements may look a little bit different, but that's why we exist, to glorify God in how we help people follow Jesus. And so I want to remind you that because of the hope that you have, you should leverage your life for the mission of the gospel. Andrew Del Banco, he's a professor of humanities at Columbia University, He wrote uh, an article called The Real American Dream. And in that article, he said the heart of any culture is hope. Hope is the way we overcome the lurking suspicion, he says, that all our getting and spending amount to nothing. Every question, every culture answers the question, what's the point? What should I live for? If I were to ask you, what's the point? Like, what are you living for? Like, what is the end? What are you aiming for? Every culture tries to answer that question. And that's why in our Western culture, in the United States, in my opinion, the greatest country on the face of the earth with the freedoms that we have, capitalism, prosperity, like the the freedoms to worship, like all these things are, are blessings from God. But in this, the temptation is we have all these things. And so the answer to this question becomes more difficult. What are we living for? What does satisfy us? Notice what he says down in verse 13. See, he's concluded this gospel hope, this gospel vision of this living hope by saying, therefore, he's saying, therefore, since God has given you abundant mercy, since he has given you, uh, since he has given you a living hope, since he's given you an, uh, an inheritance that's undefiled and that's, that's kept by God that you can rejoice in in your suffering, therefore, prepare your minds for action. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your minds for action. See, he connects hope with mission in verse 13. And it's not the last time he does it. See, what he does the rest of the book is he's aiming us at mission. He's aiming us outward. That the gospel inwardly has an outward effect. It aims us. See, if I could say it this way, I would say hope fuels our mission. And so let me give you three ways in closing this morning. That you can leverage your life for the mission of the gospel. Three ways. One is be optimistic. (laughs) If you're like me, I wish all of you could know my wife the way that I know my wife. She is the most amazing woman I've ever met. She's full of grace. She sees the best in everybody. She doesn't see the glass half full, for those of you that know her. She sees it overflowing. I am not that way. Like, I am the parent, I am the pastor, I'm just in my nature, I'm the sports fan that sees the glass half empty. Like, I have to, when I'm texting, I'm so thankful for text. Texting is better than talking for me, because I can read what I'm saying before I say it. Because I tend to be pessimistic. But as God's people, we should be the most optimistic people on the face of the earth. We should not be pessimistic. 
Listen, hope eliminates fear. We don't fear this life because we believe we had, we don't fear this life because we believe we have inherited a better life. See, as Christians, we should be the most optimistic people in the world. Because we have nothing to fear and everything to look forward to. The best is yet to come. So can I encourage you with something in your social media posts, in your text messages, in your personal relationships? Be optimistic. If any people had no reason to be optimistic, it would have been these people. It would have been Peter. It would have been Peter writing to them and, and just saying, hey, you're doomed. Like doom and gloom, like just stay in the book of Habakkuk. There's no hope. Just read that, meditate on that, memorize that, because it's just all death and decay and destroy, right? But that's not us as God's people. He's saying that we have a living hope, so be optimistic. I can tell you what my preferences are for Tuesday, but you know what? It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, and I, 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 I got to be really careful about this. Everybody should go vote. Everybody should go vote. Everybody should vote. You, you have been given as a freedom in this country to make your voice heard. There's not a perfect candidate. Like, I can get into that. I've wrestled with it. But you do have a vote. So y'all should all go vote. But at the end of the day, cast your vote. vote. Be faithful citizens to vote your conscience. Biblical principles. Do that. But at the end of the day, your hope doesn't rest in what happens Tuesday. So whether you watch Fox News or CNN drives me crazy pastorally because I I understand the tension. I don't want our country doing certain things and going certain ways either. But I, I look at scripture and I'm like, if Peter can look at a people who are suffering under the dictatorship of Nero and being burned at the stake and still be optimistic and hopeful, should we not? We're a bunch of sissies. We don't have gospel roots because the gospel gives us every reason to be optimistic. Look, this is not some pie in the sky denying the realities of the brokenness, but we have a doctrine of sin that we understand. That this world is fallen and it's not the way it should be. Josh is not the person he should be. Josh doesn't do the things that he should be, but by God's grace, he is redeeming, restoring, and making me more like Christ. That's why Paul's my hero in the New Testament, apart from Jesus, because you know what Paul says? He says, what a wretched man I am. I am the chief of sinners. Because the closer he gets to the gospel, the more he sees the sin in himself. And so let's look at ourselves and be optimistic. But second, I want to encourage you to be ready. In chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone ask you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, can I make an observation on 3.15? It is assuming that you are living in such a way that people think you have hope. Okay, so to be optimistic, if you're not optimistic, you're like, nobody asked me why I have hope. Well, maybe you should go back and say, how optimistic of a person am I? Because when we live in not false optimism, but in a hope that is guaranteed in Christ, who is guarded by God, we can be a hopeful people that are optimistic. And when people ask us in this world that feels like nothing is the way it should be, how can you have so much hope? How can you have so much hope? Look, that's the invitation to share the gospel. Is that you're a person who's optimistic, that you're ready See, the mission of the church is to help others follow Jesus. That's why we exist. So share the hope that you have in Christ by being a hopeful person. And last, this morning, if you want to leverage your life for the mission of the gospel, be together in it. Be together.
Peter is not writing to a person. He is writing to a church. He is writing to a group of people who he has redeemed and called together, imperfect as they are, who struggle as they are, to proclaim the praises of him who has called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. So if you read on in chapter 1, it talks about how you're a holy priesthood, a, 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 a royal people, a chosen people, people of God's own possession, who are called to proclaim the praises of him who has called you into his marvelous light. We are to do this together. We need each other. Hey, uh, one of the greatest blessings to your church post-2005 is Jason Engel. And let me, let me tell you why. I've already told you about Gerald, JT, but Jason. Jason right now is partnering with our student minister to make disciples of students and help them follow Jesus. In his writing, in his influence, our student minister has met with Jason just to seek counsel and guidance. And so for, for that, as a pastor, I'm thankful because I know that when we work together as churches, that's why we're SBC, cooperation together and mission to plant Churches to make the Christ of, name of Christ known to the nations. I'm thankful that we have other churches that we can look to to say, hey, these are the type of ministries we want to model and partner with. We should be together. We're part of a convention and a network that exists to plant churches and to make disciples. And that is our mission. So in response today, I just want to encourage you with two things. If you're a believer, remember that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Westwood's glory days are not in the past. The glory days are ahead of you. And those glory days will never be fulfilled until Christ comes. So you have something to aim for. You have something to strive for. But if you're here today and some of the things that I've spoken to, you realize that there's unfulfillment and dissatisfaction in your own life. The invitation is not to be better, but to receive the abundant mercy that God has given you through his son, Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father. He is a Father who loves His children, who has given His Son as a sacrifice for the atonement of your sins so that you can be reborn and be a a person that lives in the living hope of Jesus Christ. And so the response to you, if today you're here, you're far from God, I would encourage you to talk to the person who brought you or to one of the pastors and say, how do I receive this salvation that God has freely given? As a mission of the church, to help people follow Jesus. So Westwood, just a reminder, your best days are ahead of you. The best is yet to come. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we pray that the seed of your word would penetrate from our minds as we think about the things that have been said and proclaimed today. Lord, that those things would filter into our heart and then they would produce life change. God, we thank you that you are in the business of redeeming and transforming and giving us a new life. We thank you for your abundant mercy. We thank you for your faithfulness to this church. And we thank you that as your people, we have, no, we have nothing to do but to look forward to the great things that you will do. And so we thank you for your faithfulness, the great things that you have done. And we also look forward to the great things that you will do. So God, help us to be a people that are filled with this gospel hope. I pray for this church that no matter what they go through personally or corporately, 
then the end is we uphold your word as supreme and authoritative, as we follow your son as sovereign Lord and Savior. Father, that the world around us would see a light that would draw them to you. So, Spirit, we pray that you would work in our hearts to make us more like our Savior Jesus. And, Father, we pray that you would give us a hunger for those around us, those that are broken with no hope. God, we pray that they would just concentrate on the empty tomb, how there is a tomb that is empty, and if death has been defeated, if that tomb is indeed empty, then the hope that we have, may they find that that hope in you. So, Spirit, work and draw. We love you, and we thank you for Christ our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.